Let me uh, ask you to turn in your Bible in whatever form you happen to have it to Mark chapter 6 as we're continuing to do a deep dive verse by verse all the way through Mark's gospel. We're going to take a chunk that I think may take us three weeks to get through this chunk because there's so many rich nuggets here as we're uncovering them. We're going to go through verses 14 through 29, and it's going to get us a couple of weeks into August, I believe, before we can emerge from this. But it's so good that I don't want to miss a beat. I don't want to miss anything because it points to Jesus Christ's identity and his purpose and how much he cares for each one of us. Have any of you suffered a difficult loss at a difficult time? I imagine that many of us have, probably most of us have. Uh, I remember it's been just over 10 years ago, almost 11 years now, when my father-in-law passed away. It was a beautiful funeral. Some of you attended that. It was up in Clio, Michigan. Uh, I co-officiated with my brother-in-law slash pastor, colleague, friend, brother, and uh, it was just a testimony to a man who lived his life for the Lord. So we were preaching his life because that was the sermon. But I was exhausted, and I still had to do work on Sunday. For some reason, pastors still have to work on Sundays. And I came here, and I just wasn't quite myself. I was out of sorts, and I really wanted to preach. There were some good things that I wanted to share, including some of the things from that service. But somebody in our tech crew, Bill, I'm going to say good things about you. This is good gossip. He noticed that I was just not myself, and he caught me at a moment when I could be just me and he, and he said, uh, are you okay? You know what that means to somebody, for somebody just to see you and even ask that question? It meant a lot because it showed me that he was distributing some empathy my way, and I appreciated that. And I told him, I remember my response almost verbatim. I said, no, I'm not, actually, but I'm okay not being okay. Because I know where my, uh, where George is, my father-in-law, and I know that he's experiencing a life I can only hope for and imagine. I know that we're destined for that if we're a believer. So it takes the sting out, but I'm still grieving. So yeah, I know this is temporary. So I'm okay not being okay because I know this too shall pass. I said something to that effect. And it's true. Sometimes God gives us just enough strength to just take one more step and to make it one more day dealing with whatever grief has been heaped upon us, even though we're facing some really difficult challenges and we still have to work, we still have to put bread on the table, we still have to care for the people around us, all those things still have to happen, and it's tough, isn't it? Well, Jesus experienced that, and this is a passage that starts to show that. We're not going to get quite to that today, but it's one of the only passages that I can think of, especially in Mark's gospel, that doesn't focus solely on Jesus Christ. It focuses more on John the Baptist. And we see that John the Baptist, who is very special to Christ, was murdered. And so this comes at a time when Jesus is still ramping up his earthly ministry. He has a lot on his plate. He still has to keep marching forward day in and day out, and he still has a lot of people to care for. So if we can identify with what that feels like and multiply that, I imagine Jesus has felt everything that we have felt and more. And we get to see that in this passage. I remember a Sarah Groves song that ministered to me a lot at the passing of both my parents and then my father-in-law as well. It's called, What Do I Know? And I want to read a couple of lyrics from that because this thing ministered to me. I listened to this song over and over again thinking about my loved ones. But she said, death can be so inconvenient. You try to live and love and it comes and interrupts. 
And what do I know? What do I know? Well, I don't know that there are harps in heaven or the process for earning your wings. And I don't know of bright lights at the end of tunnels or any of those things. But I know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And from what I know of him, that must be pretty good. And in the last time through that verse, she sings it, and then there's a little instrumental interlude, and she comes in with the last time, and she says, and from what I know of him, that must be very good. And that's enough. So if you get warm and fall asleep, you've heard the biggest part of the sermon that he is enough, Christ is enough to get us through those times of grief because we can cling to him because from what we know of him, if our loved one is with the Lord, it must be pretty good. So I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to read the whole thing so we can get some context. It's a little bit lengthier than some that we've been tackling of late, but i like for you to hear the whole story. It's hard to break this one up. And then we're going to see some evidence of persecution that befalls some people, including John the Baptist, because of pride and power and corruption in politics, something that none of us know a thing about. And uh, the reason that I'm just putting for you the address of our passage, but I'm not actually putting up all the verses for you to read off there, there's three reasons, and I've been studying this. I've been trying to figure out what's the best way to keep people leaning into the word and engaged in it. There is this thing called PowerPoint fatigue. I think it's a real thing. And I've noticed when I've gone to pastor's conferences and somebody puts this huge block of text up there, you know, three pages of material, and my brain just kind of checks out and goes, oh, I'm numb. So that's one reason why I would prefer not to put every word up there so that I'm saying the same word that you're trying to read. Another thing, and one of our persons that I know is a quick reader, she told me one time, I'm reading faster than you're speaking, and there's a little bit of a disconnect, and so it's kind of hard, and I get that as well. So some of you auditory learners, I typically think that I learn more by listening than I do by reading. If it's better for you just to listen to the word being read, that's good. The scriptures tell us that faith comes by hearing, so I think that's okay. Or if you can lean into the scriptures better by checking it out and reading along so that you can just double check so that when I stutter or stammer or skip a line, you'll know what the scripture says. But whatever the case is, I just want you all to know that the word is important and I want you to grasp it in the best way possible so that you can really grab a hold of it because it will grab a hold of you. So this is today's passage, Mark 6, 14 through 29. This time, again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, hmm, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Others said, "Uh, he's the prophet Elijah. And still others said, he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. Now, when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John... The man I beheaded has come back from the dead. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. And John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. 
So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. And Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for the high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. And you should know that frequently wine would be flowing at these kinds of events. Verse 22, Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. We can only use our imaginations there. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I'll give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. So she went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? And her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. And then the king deeply regretted what he had said. My son would say, I immediately regret that decision. And he did. I mean, immediately. The king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. Let's pray. God, we have no idea what the disciples or what Jesus may have been feeling. We can get a clue from our own experiences, but this must have been horrific. And I pray now as we start to unpack the wonderful things you have for us in this passage, I pray that we will, each one of us, start to see you more clearly and be able to answer the question, who is Jesus really? And I pray it in Jesus' name. So I've noticed, and you probably noticed this, I mentioned it briefly last week, that media producers know that they've got a ready audience when they start to crank out another documentary along the lines of, who is Jesus? Or who is the real Jesus? Or new archaeology that reveals more about the real Jesus? Or those kinds of things. We can see it with National Geographic and Time Magazine. They do one often. Uh, the History Channel has several that come out like that. I think even BBC has come up with that. Amazon, I noticed a more recent one from Amazon just recently. However, you should know that when they approach this subject, they don't approach it from the eyes of looking at the Holy Scripture the way we look at Holy Scripture if we're a believer in Christ. Because we believe that the Bible is an accurate, trustworthy revelation of God to mankind because of the eyewitnesses that we have to corroborate the four Gospels that we have. And so we understand that should be our primary source. So when these producers come at it from lots of other sources, including liberal scholars, they come out with a much different picture than what I would think of that Mark is presenting for us. And that, in fact, is Mark's purpose for his gospel. 
Mark is actually doing what these guys are trying to do, and I don't think they do it successfully. Mark is saying, who is the real Jesus? And we actually have people asking almost verbatim that question in some of Mark's gospel. So he's saying, I want to be able to reveal Jesus to you in such a profound way because of his actions that were undeniable and that challenge us to say, what are you going to do with this guy? How do we respond to him? So that's what we get to do by looking at this passage and the rest of Mark's gospel. So one of the reasons that I like Mark's gospel so much and why I recommend it to newcomers to the Bible or to people who are in small groups for the first time, he's action-packed and he shows unmistakable evidence about how we get to know who he is by what he has done. We see already, as I've mentioned, that in the New Testament, Jesus calms a storm. He just speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. Then we look at the Old Testament, and the Jews are thinking, wait a minute, only God can do that. And then we see also, Jesus forgives sin. Chapter 2, man on the mat, let down through the roof. Son, your sins are forgiven. Pharisees, ah, only God can forgive sins. Why is he talking like that? So we see these things that the Old Testament is showing us that when Jesus is doing these actions in the New Testament, he's causing a ruckus because people have to explain what these actions mean, and many of them try to explain it by looking through their worldview filters rather than just trying to say, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So clearly, in the passage we just read, people are debating who they think Jesus really is. Let's look at some of those in verses 14 and 15. John, Elijah, a prophet of old. That's some of the speculation that's going on there. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, a prophet. Now, if this was on a test, and I'd probably give it to you with multiple choice to make it easy, but if this were on a test, this would be an easy one for you to get right. If I were to say, what about Jesus caused them to think that he was a prophet? Well, it's because he was saying things that sounded prophet-like, that sounded almost like the stuff that you would hear in the Old Testament that had been said by the prophets. And he was doing miracles. So if you think about Elijah, for example, and some of those great miracles, uh, the widow who had the oil and the oil kept coming and uh, the fact that the raven fed him and took care of him when there was a drought, all these things that were happening. So they're thinking, okay, prophet, maybe he's a prophet of old. But what makes this astounding, and it doesn't put it into the realm of, okay, just another prophet, eh, NBD. Instead, you should know that there had been no real prophet of God for about 400 years in Jewish history. So think about that in the number of uh, generations that we might have. I know that our family's got a cousin, the one in Texas that takes a picture of her thermometer. <laughs> She's gotten into a lot of genealogy, and she has traced back to like the third or fourth great-grandparents on a couple of sides of the family. But we have a hard time getting beyond that in our genealogies. Some can go farther, but not many. But think about that. That would be approximately 13 or 14 generations for the Jews that they have not heard an honest-to-goodness God sent prophets saying, thus saith the Lord. They hadn't heard that. So for them to say, oh, this guy must be one of the prophets like the prophets of old, that was actually a big deal. That would be like them saying something astounding is happening here and we can't quite figure out what it is yet, but what we do know is it's a big deal. Um, one of the things that we know too is that Josephus, that first century Jewish historian sheds a little bit of light on how people revered their books and what they say about them. And that's why we can say that when people are seeing Old Testament connections with New Testament events, that's a big deal in the Jewish mindset. 
He was providing for us, by the way, Josephus, a list in his time, so that was in the first century, of all the Old Testament books that make up what we now call the Old Testament, that the Jews would have considered canonized or accepted books. And guess what? They're all exactly the same list that we have today in our Christian Bible. Now, you should know that later on, uh, the Roman Catholic Church added a few additional books, some of those apocryphal books. We don't believe that they should belong in the canon because we think that Josephus and others back then had already recognized that these were clearly recognized as the canonized Old Testament. But that should give us a clue that these were important books to these folks because they had already put their stamp of approval on them and they saw them as authoritative. And he also wrote about the succession of prophets, which factors into the fact that they hadn't had any for 400 years or so. And he called it a failure of succession or failure of exact succession of the prophets. That's just saying there haven't been any spokespersons like the prophets that we see in the Old Testament since Malachi, all the way up till John the Baptist comes on the scene. So in the first century AD, here's what you've got. Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist, who's considered the last of the Old Testament prophets because he is the forerunner of Christ, as we'll see even in more detail in a second. And they're thinking, oh yeah, this guy must be another one of those kinds of prophets. You can understand that that would have been huge. How about Elijah? Why would they say instead of just one of the prophets of old, they get specific and they would say, oh, well, maybe he's Elijah, which means he'd have to come back from the dead as well. A couple of reasons why that's important. First of all, many of the things that Jesus fulfilled in the way of Old Testament prophecy were things that Elijah had prophesied. So that's one reason. And another is he was talking a lot like Elijah. I think Elijah's ministry influenced Jesus a lot, but it's not like a professor in college influences us and we quote them a lot. Like my one professor that said, never resign on a Monday or in the month of August. You know, I can still quote that because he understood that things can get, you know, vacation times, take people away and all that stuff. But that's not that kind of quoting when Jesus is quoting from Elijah because he likes Elijah's writings a lot. It's because he was purposefully carrying out these prophecies because he is the promised Messiah. And Jesus actually tells us who John the Baptist is and how he's related to the Messiah. Now, you get 100 extra living water points if you read the article that I posted on social media a couple of days ago and I emailed it to some of the rest of you. It goes into more detail than I have time for, but this is the truncated version, the fast version. You ready? Jesus actually tells us who Elijah is. He clarifies the issue for us. He tells us that John came, quote, in the power and spirit of Elijah. We find that in Luke 1.17. So John the Baptist in the New Testament becomes the forerunner of Christ pointing to the way that Jesus is supposed to arrive in the same way that Elijah had done in the Old Testament. So it's not saying that John the Baptist is a literal reincarnate Elijah. It's not saying that at all. He's saying that he is like an Elijah type, just like we have seen that there are Christ types in the Old Testament. Got that? Clear as mud? Good for you. All right, so just to make sure you got it clear, was John the Baptist, Elijah, physically reincarnated? No, good for you. Okay, you get, you get extra points on that one too. So as we can see in verse 14, some of the Jews were a little bit maybe superstitious because they did believe in some kind of a reincarnation, but it was sort of a loosey-goosey, I'm not sure how this works kind of reincarnation. They just figured maybe that's what's happening. And some thought Jesus was one of the prophets of old. And then we also see 
that there were the superstitious rumors about John the Baptist. And that's why I saved this one for last, because we need to find out why it was important to Herod Antipas back then. Rumors were swirling around Israel because of the many things Jesus had been doing. And we read in Luke 9, that time when Jesus is starting to quiz. I quiz you guys a lot, but Jesus was quizzing his own disciples. That was one of his teaching methods. And he wanted to find out, who do the people in the crowds that we've been ministering to and that I've been speaking to, who do people say that I am? He didn't say, who do you say that I am yet? He was saving that for later. But he says, who do people say that I am? And they said the same things that these folks were saying. They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets maybe of long ago has come back to life. Luke 9, 19. The disciples had firsthand experience, though, you'll recall, with both John the Baptist and Jesus. And they knew that John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries because guess what? They've been in the same river together. John the Baptist baptized Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. So clearly, John the Baptist could not be this person that some people were saying that he was. And they understood that, and Jesus wanted to really clarify the issue. And he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? He says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That was Simon Peter who said that. He got that one right. He got some extra living water points for saying that one right off the bat. However, he then messed up a little bit later because he tried to rebuke Jesus because Jesus suggested that he was going to have to suffer and die. And Peter says, oh, Lord, there's got to be a better way. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. But for a moment, Peter got one right. And so he's saying, who do you say that I am? A lot of these people thought that maybe it was Elijah because he was speaking and sounding like him. He was fulfilling some of the things that Elijah did. But you should also know that there were some interesting things happening in the Jewish mentality that got fast-forwarded even to today. I found this out from my friend Rabbi Glenn. And some of you have heard him teach. One time we had a winter Bible study. He took us through a Jewish Passover because he's a fulfilled Jew. He's, he's a nice Joe too, but he was a fulfilled Jew. He was telling us all the different ways that you can point to Messiah in the symbolism of Passover, which I thought was brilliant coming from a Jewish background. And so he was saying that even in today's Passover celebrations, they have this little play acting thing that get the kids involved. And in part of this Passover, they'll get one of the younger kids to say, okay, it's time to go to the door, kids. Which one wants to do it? And me, I do, I do, I do. So they'll send the kid to the door, they'll throw open the front door and look out and they'll say, is he here yet? Is he here yet? And when I first heard that being spoken out loud, I thought, are they looking for Messiah? He says, no, they're looking for Elijah. Some of the rabbinic teaching in the Jewish lore got added to the Passover from Exodus, so that's a modern-day interpretation. So they're still looking for Elijah to come. Why would that be? Because they think Elijah is going to be the forerunner of Christ. And Jesus is saying he was. And then John the Baptist picked up that mantle, and in the same spirit and in the same power, John the Baptist became the forerunner. So John the Baptist is, in a sense, the new Elijah. And that, for us, fulfills all those Old Testament prophecies. It ties everything together with a ribbon. And we can see now why some folks missed that, and Jesus helped clarify that for us. So where would we go for a good, reliable source if we're going to lock into some of this stuff and say, yes, I can believe that. I can take that to the bank. Well, I would not go to National Geographic or the BBC. They do a great job. Their production values are excellent. They have great camera work, and the editing is super, and I like the writing, and some of the narrators they hire are fantastic, so I don't disparage their good work, 
But I think they've come to some wrong conclusions because they're coming at it from a liberal mindset. And they'll say, oh, well, poor Jesus. He was a good guy. He, he was a man of upright character, which is good, but he just happened to come into convergence there like a perfect storm of ideologies and political ideologies and religious ideologies, and those things converged on him, and, and the poor man became this guy that other people lifted up and called him a martyr, and they created this whole movement based on that. That's kind of the conclusion many people come to if they're looking at it through secular eyes. And Mark doesn't leave us that kind of conclusion. He says, no, you can't do that. You have to understand why he goes to such effort to show us that Jesus' own presence demands an explanation. We have to explain it. And some people tried to explain it. They tried to explain him away, in fact. Some of his detractors would say, oh, yeah, we have to admit that he did do some miracles. Now, if you were on a jury and somebody said, yeah, we admit that he did miracles, the other person you know, on the other side of the bench would be going, thank you, you're making my case for me. And that's, in a sense, what these people were doing. But they couldn't quite come to the point where they said, and he's doing miracles in the name of God. So they said, well, it has to be by the power of Beelzebul. He's doing it by the power of Satan. So, yeah, he's doing these great things. You've all seen it, and I can't deny that because they're so obvious. But it's got to be through my worldview lens. So he's got to have been doing that by the power of Satan because certainly he couldn't be God, right? That's what was happening back then. And I think that if we look around at some of the pushback against these stories today, it's still happening. People don't know how to explain it, so they're trying to use Jesus and co-opt him and put him in some sort of a category that they can accept. I, I heard one person who said, well, I think he did do some things that people called miracles, but they were really illusionist kinds of things. He was doing magic. Guess who the person was who said that? A magician. That was his worldview, and he thought, well, we'll just attribute that to him. Other people would say from psychology, it was mass hypnosis. Okay, well, if you did that, let's read the evidence for an event or events like the ones we're reading about in Mark's gospel and see if that actually really does happen, especially with that many people, like 500 witnesses at one time. I don't think that's going to hold water either. It's not going to stack up. His presence confronts us. His actions confront us to explain it and think, what do we do with this guy? So after that, after Jesus had asked, who do the crowds say that I am? And they said, some say Elijah, some say prophet of old, some say John the Baptist. He says, but who do you say that I am? That's the question. That's the question we all have to answer. And it's the one that keeps driving me back to the cross because we know who God is by what he has done. And what he did was to send his one and only son who loved us so much that he died in our place on the cross and then was resurrected on the third day, appeared to more than 500 witnesses, and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father so that he could atone for our sin and draw us into a loving relationship with the God who loves us that much. His actions reveal his identity. So I just have to put it to you the way Mark puts it to us. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. God, it's a strange thing to watch your spirit at work in other people's lives, and I've seen it. I've seen people right in the middle of a prayer at the end of a small group meeting start to admit that what they had heard and studied is real. And they were making a big step of faith by admitting that, by just confessing, yeah, I believe this to be true. And something powerful happens when your spirit 
guides us to that conclusion. And I pray again and again that more and more and more people will come to that conclusion and will embrace you as Savior and Lord because you promised so much to those who believe in you. We'll, we'll be joint heirs with you in eternity and we'll be able to partake of everything that you are establishing for a future. Not to mention the fact that you make life so much more purposeful and you give us a sense of belonging to your family here on earth. I pray that if your spirit has been working in the heart of somebody even today, they would listen to that spirit and respond and say, yes, I believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. Come into my heart through your spirit and guide me in my walk with you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.